Let's pray. for Father, we are so grateful for the Easter story. We are thankful that the grave is empty. Uh, Lord, I think about the angel's words, why do you seek the dead among the, or why do you seek the living among the dead? Um, he is not here. He is risen. Um, we do not seek a dead Savior. We seek a risen Savior. And so, Lord, we come this morning seeking your face, and we pray that as we proclaim the good news, that it'll be the best news. It'll be the news that our hearts long for. Lord, we ask that we see your face in your word, that we are captivated with the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been um, doing a series out of the book of Ruth, um, and, um, and we are going to continue, which is kind of a, a funny thing to do on Easter Sunday. Um, but I have a long history of preaching the most unlikely text on any given holiday. Um, Easter 2009, I started a series um, on uh, finances, and my rationale was if um, if God cannot redeem everything, including our finances, then what good is the, the empty tomb? Um, uh, Christmas of 2010, I preached out of Proverbs. Um, uh, Mother's Day 2011, I preached out of 1 Timothy 2, which is a passage that guys spend their whole ministry career trying to avoid because it says that women should remain silent in the church, and I used that to make a case for the value of motherhood. So, um, so to, to be Resurrection Sunday and to be preaching from the book of Ruth um, may seem odd for anybody else, but it isn't for me. Um, but there's something in the last chapter of Ruth that is so important that it will impact the way that we view what it is that the resurrection accomplished. And so without this, we have kind of a, 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 a an atrophied view of the gospel. We don't have a clear a beautiful picture of everything that the, the, the resurrection accomplished. If, if I were to open up the mic and I were to ask all of you, um, what is it that the resurrection accomplished? I think probably the very first answer we would get is, well, it's forgiveness of sins. And pardon is definitely um, uh, part of what the resurrection accomplished. Um, pardon, we're released from our obligation. Um, we we uh, have no further debt on our account. And you go, yeah, that's that's, that's pretty good news, right? Um, uh, if, if you have more of a theological uh, like vocabulary, maybe like Bruce Barkus might say, um, uh, justification, that we're declared righteous, that we are exonerated, our record is expunged. Um, and, and, and that is, again, that's good news. Uh, if you have maybe some theological training, like Kirby or Rex, or um, uh, you're a student of the Bible, you might talk about propitiation, and that is uh, God's wrath has been satisfied, that, that um, the penalty is paid, that God no longer seeks um, justice for the crimes that we've committed. And you go, man, that's good news, right? Um, and then if you're uh, somebody really studious, maybe like Clayton, um, uh, you might talk about expiation. That is, atonement is completed because reparations have been made. And all of those things are good things, right? It's, it's good news. But this week I was thinking, like, is, is pardon the best news? Is justification the greatest news? Um, and I, I have to say that individually these things are good news, but not the best news. Why? Because pardon, having no debt, 
is not the same as having great wealth, right? Being justified. Exoneration gives us exemption from hell, but it gives us no right to heaven. Propitiation. A person released of, of a charge of an offense does not automatically, that doesn't grant him entrance into the throne room of the king. It certainly doesn't give him a room in the palace. Expiation. While restitution has been made, it's different than being in a position of favor. And what all of these things individually hurt, there is something that when put together, they are. And that is redemption. Redemption is so much better than just forgiveness of sins. Because redemption is the idea that, that all of our debt is, is bought by Jesus. That, that our life is bought by Jesus, that we become part of his family, that, that we gain his inheritance, that he gives us his name. And so when we talk about, about redemption, which is what the, the last chapter of, of Ruth really talks about, um, it talks about redemption being the greatest news. And, and when we understand redemption in Ruth, then we can understand redemption in all of scripture. And we can understand how it is that redemption is the thing that gives God's name the greatest glory. Um, uh, absolutely um, uh, of, of most value. And so uh, we, we are going to talk in, in Ruth chapter 4 about redemption. Um, and so in Ruth chapter 4, you, you have to understand um, there's some things that, that the, the whole chapter starts talking um, about names, and it talks about, um, uh, different, like, it, it identifies a person without a name. Uh, it talks about the name of Boaz becoming great. It talks about the name of Ruth. It talks about their offspring. Um, uh, but uh, it, it deals with names quite a bit. Um, years ago, I, there, there was a, uh, a graffiti artist in LA that had uh, been struck by a car on the five and I was reading an article about it and it triggered across to another article, uh, about a guy named Peter Berry, who similarly had died in Chicago. He was a, um, famous or notorious tagger, uh, was a graffiti artist, a bomber. Um, and, and he went by the nickname Kaiser or King and, and like other taggers in Chicago, he would position himself um, in train tunnels and and he would climb up often sometimes cranes 200 feet high so that he could leave his mark where nobody could go wash it off and and in the early mornings of, of one August day uh, Peter Berry was killed he was struck by a, a northbound CTA red line train just two days after his 22nd birthday and and in this article it's talking about Peter Berry and and his friends, other, other graffiti bombers, like their, their comments were really interesting. They said, Peter wasn't just any bomber. He was one of the best. Um, he climbed to the highest spots. He had gay, he had guts. His name was known and his name will still be known. I could not identify with, um, wanting to leave my name on a freeway wall. Like, I couldn't understand risking my life for it. But I think we can all identify with the idea of wanting to leave a mark, of wanting to leave a legacy, of someone remembering our name. I, I think, you know, we go to a funeral, and if somebody does a really great job of, of talking about 
a person's life, we walk away and we go, man, I, I hope somebody does my funeral like that, right? Because I want people to remember my name. Those of us who have kids, often we pin our hopes on being remembered to our kids. So we spend an enormous amount of money on education and on sports and different things, hoping that our kids will be exceptional. Why? Because we want them to be able to say, hey, that's the kids boy. Right. I mean, that, that, that's what we want. We um, <laughs> it's why I repeated to my boys before they went to camp this winter. Um, the same thing my dad repeated to us when we were kids growing up and it, which was, um, hey, you boys are Christians. You know, wear the name of Jesus. Um, you boys are Wagners. You wear my name. Do not mess this up. Right. Um, I remember the, the first time I got in trouble with the police um, coming home and facing my dad and my dad saying, um, um, Wagner's don't get in trouble with the law. What was he saying? He was saying, I'm raising men to be, um, uh, I, I've got four boys, I'm raising men to be men, good Christians, good citizens. This is not who I'm raising you to be. And I, this is not the legacy. This is not the name that I want for you going forward. Um, and, and so all of us in some form or fashion, we want to leave a mark. And sometimes we want to do it through our kids. Sometimes we want to do it through a job. Sometimes we want to do it through uh, art or, or even just family and relationships or, or something, ministry, right? Um, uh, but, and, and wanting to leave a name, wanting to leave a legacy is not a bad thing. Ecclesiastes 3 says, God has put eternity in our, our hearts. That is, he has made us to be eternal beings who matter for eternity. And and the most dreaded judgment that that a Hebrew could hear uttered, or the, the, the curse that they would never want someone to put on them is, may your seed perish and may your name die out. The ancients believed that if a person died and their name was not remembered after they died, that person never truly existed. And so that's why God instructed Israel in Exodus 23 mention of the names of other gods. Why? Because he wanted to, to say they don't exist, so don't even name them. Job says of the wicked, his memory perishes from the earth. He has no name in the street. And you contrast that with the Exodus. And it says that in every place where I will cause my name to be remembered, I will bless you. When we come together and we worship, we are remembering God's name. We are extolling his name. We are giving glory to his name. And so Psalms 102 says, you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Your name endures to all generations. Our, our name being remembered after we die means that, that maybe we reflected God's image, and maybe we, we showed a bit of, of what his image is like because we lived like he did. But like all good things, it, uh, having a good name, it's a good thing, but it can become a bad thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. And often in our culture, Getting our name known, having people remember us, notoriety, it becomes uh, a pursuit of its own, and it's a, a pursuit apart from God. And so um, in, in Ruth chapter 4, just to give you a, kind of the, the context, as we wrapped up last week in Ruth chapter 3, um, Ruth has gone to Boaz, and she has, has said very plainly, I want you to marry me, and I want you to redeem Naomi. And he says, um, blessed are you, and, um, and I will uh, go do uh, what I can to make this happen, but there's someone else who has a claim on you, um, and so, and a claim on the land, and a claim on Naomi, and they are a 
closer redeemer than I am, but I will go take care of this. And so Ruth goes back to Naomi and she says, this is what happened. Naomi says, we're staying in today. We're not going to the fields um, because Boaz is going to take care of this thing. And so we're, we're kind of left on the edge, wondering what's going to happen um, as Boaz goes to talk to this other person who could be a redeemer. And so in Ruth chapter four, verse one, it says, now Boaz had gone to the gate and he sat down there. Let's see if I can let you see what I see. There we go. Um, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now, remember, a redeemer um, could be uh, a number of different things in the Old Testament. Um, uh, the Every family was in the business of redeeming because your firstborn child needed to be redeemed. Your firstborn of any of your animals needed to be redeemed. And typically you redeem them with a price that you paid or a sacrifice that you made. And so redeeming was something that that everybody did. Um, And it was something that God called everyone to do specifically around um, people who had to sell their land because they were under duress. They, they were impoverished. They, they needed to recover money. Sometimes people sold themselves into slavery. And so those people could be redeemed. And Leviticus 25 talks about how land and property and enslaved people can be redeemed or bought back. There's, there's also a sense in which a, a redeemer could be the person who, um, if, if someone kills a family member, that there's a redeemer that can be their legal avenger, and they can go and they can take the life of the person who has has taken the life of their family member. And so, and in the same passage that, that talks about that, the congregation can be the redeemer, and they can redeem a person who committed accidental manslaughter, and they can allow him into their city of refuge, and he can be there protected from the avenger, right? So there's lots of different ways that the Bible talks about redeemer. But in this case, you're talking about um, a person who has the ability to buy the land that was Elimelech's, to take on Elimelech's name, to take on um, his entire estate. And so it says, Boaz had gone to the gate, and he sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken to Ruth came by. And Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here, and they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you about it, but literally I thought I would uncover your ear, that I would give you the scoop and say, buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And this is the point where you go, all right, the the happy ending is about to happen, right? He's going to say, no, 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 go ahead, Boaz. But instead, the Redeemer says, I will redeem it. And you go, wait, that's not how the story is supposed to go. Boaz is supposed to get the land and Boaz is supposed to get the girl. What's, What's happening, right? So Boaz says, oh, incidentally, <laughs> the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now you have to think about what just happened, right? Boaz is talking to this 
this redeemer. And as he's talking to the redeemer, he says, hey, there's this piece of land. And he, as he's talking about it, this guy knows about the land. He knows about Naomi. He knows about Elimelech. He knows that Malon and Shilion and Elimelech and, and Naomi went down into, into to Moab, that they left the land for a time. And then when Naomi came back, her husband, her sons are dead. She shows up with a Moabite. Everybody's talked about this. Everybody is, is understanding what's going on. And, and so he knows hey, um, I, I have a claim on this land if she decides that she wants to, to sell it in order to have enough funds to get through her lifetime. And, and so he has done the mental calculation and he's thought about it. And he's like, all right, this is pretty easy. If, if I redeem this, then I do have to take care of Naomi. But Naomi's old and she doesn't eat a lot. There's not going to be a lot of expenses. And eventually she's going to die. And when she dies, I get that land. That land becomes part of the thing that is put to my name. Now, in, in those days, when, when people talked about someone whose name was great, typically you didn't know that somebody's name was great until after they died. And the way that their name was made great was that the oldest son would bring all of their possessions to the city gate. And they would bring their gold and their silver and their linen and their fine cloth. And they would count up the number of animals and they would do all of these different um, uh, accountings of what that person had. And then they would go into the city gate and they would talk about um, these are all the things that this person had in their lifetime. And as they talked about all those things, they'd be like, wow, did you hear how many sheep and goats he has? Did you hear how many so fine silks he has. Do you know how many pounds of gold he has? And his name would be going out into the city and his name would be great. Like, I can't believe how much he had. And then in, in the city gate that because the firstborn was kind of the executor of the will and he had, had essentially um, done all those calculations and brought all the stuff to the city, when they divided things up, if say it was my kids and there's four of my boys, um, then the oldest would actually get two parts. They would divide it into five and, and the oldest would get two parts and the others would each get a part. And so they would, it would be divided in fifths with the oldest getting two of the fifths in, in, in my case. Um, so, so he, he's thinking about this and he's looking and going, Hey, when, when she dies, she's too old to have any more kids. I don't have to worry about uh, adding another person into this equation, my kids get to divide this up. My name is made great. Um, I am going to be recognized as, look, he had all this land and this is what he did with it, right? Then Boaz throws in this curveball. Oh, by the way, you get Ruth, the Moabite, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In other words, you get a woman who is still childbearing years. You get a woman who now you have to add as a wife. So it's not just a short period of time until Naomi dies. You have a wife for the rest of your life. And you have to promise to try to give her a baby. And if she has a baby, then that baby is comes into your home and that baby grows and, and, and uses up your resources. But at the end of your life, it's no account to you um, for, for you to have cared for that baby. That baby will not be named after you. It won't be, you won't be junior. It won't be junior. That baby will be named Malon or that baby will na be named Elimelech because he's going to carry that name. And when you die, that land that, that you're buying, it doesn't go to your credit. 
it goes to him and your other descendants get no part of it because this is Malon's inheritance. This is his land. This is not your land. And that son now is, is also part of your, like they become your heir as well. And so they're going to get a portion of the inheritance that your other kids have to split with them. And so all of a sudden the math looks very different. And so it says, the Redeemer says, well, I cannot redeem it for myself, which is really funny because just one verse backwards, he said, I will redeem it. And suddenly he says, I cannot redeem it. And, and really what he's saying is, I will not redeem it. I will not obey God in this. God had, had specifically set things up in Leviticus to, so that, that people would do the right thing, even though um, it would not help them. It would not make their name great. They had a responsibility to the nation and to Yahweh, the covenant keeper, that, that they would keep the land in the hands of his people, and that generation after generation would pass the land down. And so it was a responsibility, even though it didn't help you at all, it was something you were supposed to take on. But this is during the time of the judges, and everybody's doing that which is right in his own eyes. And so he says, I can't redeem it for myself. I won't, lest I impair the inheritance I will leave for my children. I don't want to mess that up. So you take my right of redemption because I cannot redeem it. And he tells the same lie twice. I cannot. When what he really means is I will not. And so this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a matter of attesting in Israel. And so when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Now, th this is kind of an interesting thing, a, a way that we, we don't necessarily do business. But uh, back then, I mean, you could walk into a party and you could see which guys were doing business together. You would look up and go, hey, look at his shoes. They don't match. Oh, that guy's got a pair of shoes just like that. They must be doing business together. And it was not just a sign of, of what the, the contract was. It was actually the term and the limitations of the contract. Because what you were saying when you drew off your sandal is, I'm taking off my sandal and I'm giving up my right to walk this land. I will no longer have the right to walk this land because it's not mine. You have the right to walk this land. You are going to wear the sandal. Like it shows that you own this land. And so it was a way for them to, to symbolize what had happened, but it was also a reminder of, of what was happening in the contract. And so Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech. When he says all, he doesn't just mean the land and possessions. He means I'm taking on his debt. I'm taking on everything that goes with Elimelech's estate. I get it all. And, and if there's responsibilities that are owed, I will pay those. And if there's things that need to happen, I'm taking those on. And I'm taking on all that belong to Shilion and Malon. I am, I am redeeming all of this family's belongings, all of their livelihood. I'm redeeming their name. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought, I have purchased, I have redeemed to be my wife. And here's why. To perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Not, I, I want her to be my wife because I love her and, and I'm romantically interested in her. I'm doing what's right. I'm doing what's right in Yahweh's name to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off among his brothers from the gate. Remember, he's, he's saying, I, I don't want 
um, the name of the dead to be forgotten. I don't want people, because if, if people forget Malon and Shilion and Elimelech, then, then essentially it's like they never lived. And, and my responsibility before God is to make sure that their name is not forgotten and that they have an inheritance and that their inheritance goes on. And so I'm going to redeem all of what they have, and I'm going to redeem Naomi, and I'm going to redeem um, uh, Ruth. And so uh, he says, you are my witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem, the city of David. And may your house be like the house of Perez. And we're going to find out later. Perez is his great, great, great granddad. Whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so the people are blessing Boaz's name. And they are saying, wow, may, may your name be great. May your house be great. Because you are doing the thing that's right, even though everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And nobody else wants to do what's right. And he says, may, may your name be blessed. You know, it's, it's interesting when you look at, at here's, here's a redeemer who is, is put in, in this place of being asked to redeem someone. He's, he's the, the, the first and legal one that should be the one in line to do the right thing. And he is so worried about his name being remembered, his inheritance being great, that he actually he torpedoes his name. If you go back to, to 4 verse 1, in chapter 4 verse 1 it says, so Boaz said, turn aside friend. It's, it's um, literally, a, the Hebrew words are rhyming poloni almoni. It's, it's like we would say, turn aside so and so, turn aside such and such. And you go, wait, does does Boaz not know his name? I mean, you show up at a, a work event and there's somebody that you look at and you go, I know that guy, what was his name? And so he comes over and sticks his hand out and you go, hey, buddy, right? Or you're at church and, and it's been a while since you saw this person. You're like, I, I don't remember what's their name. And you're like, hi, brother, <laughs> right? You don't do that at a family reunion, right? You, at a family reunion, there's nobody going, hey, what's up? buddy, you know everybody. They're your family. And so here's a family member, and he says, hey, so-and-so, hey, such-and-such. Why Why is that? God, the author of Ruth, is making sure that this guy who wanted to make his name great, that his name is never remembered. And anonymity is, is God's judgment on him, saying, oh, you want to make your name great and not, and not make my name great, then I'm going to make sure nobody ever knows your name, that it's never entered, that, that nobody ever knows who you were. And so, so um, Boaz has done something that, that um, this Redeemer has not. And, and so the people say, may Boaz's name be great. And Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. This is interesting. There's only two times in Ruth in, in chapter one, verse six, um, and then here, where it talks about the Lord intervening directly. In chapter 1, verse 6, it says that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
And then you come to the end of the book and it says that the Lord gave her conception. And what you have is a, a, a basically a literary device, an inclusio, it's bookends. And, and the bookends are to say the Lord was working at the beginning and the Lord is working at the end. And in between, even though you don't see him, He's working everywhere in between. And so it says that the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, Boaz. And may his name be renowned in Israel. You're like, is that Boaz? He, he shall be your restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than seven sons, has given birth to him. And so they're, they're, they're saying, God gave you a redeemer, but more important, he gave you a child. He has given you one who will restore your life, who will be the nourisher of your old age. And your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better than seven sons, you lost two sons. Your daughter-in-law is an upgrade, and, and she is, is better than the two sons that you had. But this son, this son's going to be your restorer of life. This son's going to be your nourisher of old age. And, and they're extolling the name of Boaz, and they're extolling the name of Obed that we'll find out, and they're extolling the name of Ruth. But in none, none of this are they extolling the name of Yahweh. And when she came to her mother-in-law, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I just went into last week's slides. Let's um, see if... Uh, there it is. Naomi took the child. That's what happens when you re reuse slides and then don't go through them. Um, Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse and the father of David. You go, wow, that's, that's some kind of legacy. Like, he's the great-grandfather of the greatest king that Israel ever knew. Like, this is pretty amazing. It says, now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Like, wait, what just happened? I, I thought that the whole point of this was that he was to perpetuate the name of the dead. That it was supposed to be that we would, we would have Elimelech fathered Malon, and Malon fathered Obed, right? It, it, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? And in this genealogy, what, what you begin to see is that that something amazing happens, that, that Boaz has said, it doesn't matter about my name. It doesn't matter about my inheritance. I'm going to do what's right because what matters is Yahweh's name. And Ruth has said, I'm going to do what's right because what matters is Yahweh's name. And then when they have given up the care for what happens to their name, God says, I'm going to bless your name and I'm going to, to put this legacy together. And if you've ever seen... Um, the movie Ants. It's a really old animated movie. Uh, the whole thing takes place in an anthill. And at the end of the movie, the, the camera begins to pan out, and you see that the anthill is underneath a water fountain. And the water fountain is in a park. And then it shows you, oh, uh, that's Central Park. Oh, that's New York. Oh, that's the United States. That's the whole world, and it's out in space. Essentially, this genealogy is, is giving us kind of a, a pan-out view of what's happening. It's, it's letting us see that, that Boaz, yeah, he was honored at the gate and he was honored by the women with Naomi and, and honored 
by the descendants who come after him, but he's honored by his legacy. David is the one who secures rest for the nation. David becomes the most notable king in, in um, Hebrew history. David is the one who the, the Messiah's line will come from. David is the one who um, uh, is... His name is great because he was a great king, but his name is great because ultimately Messiah would come from him. And so you see that the whole point of this is that this lasting name points us to David and ultimately to David's son, Jesus, who was born in the city of David. You see three times in here, it talks about David. And it points us to a redeemer. It points us to one who is even better than Boaz, the, the redeemer who would redeem not just a person, not just a family, but that would redeem all of mankind. You have to understand that the Bible is the story of redemption. The Bible is the story of our redemption. The Bible begins when, with, with God creating everything good. And even the, like things that we can't imagine having, having ever been possibly good, um, like Lucifer, um, was created good. In, in, in Ezekiel 28, it says that, that, that Lucifer was the signet of perfection. He was full of wisdom and beauty. He was an anointed cherubim, and he was blameless in everything until unrighteousness was found in him. And, and Isaiah goes on to tell us, like, what, what did Lucifer do? He said, I will ascend to heaven. I will be above the stars. I will set my throne on high. I will, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so God says, I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. I cast you to the ground, and I exposed you before kings. Revelation picks up the story, and it says, a war arose, and Michael and the angels fighting against the dragon, Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there's no place for him in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth with his angels. He was thrown down with them. And so you see this amazing story in the scripture where, where Satan, who's created by God, who has seen God's glory, somehow thinks, yeah, I can take him. And, and amazingly, he must have been amazing. It says that, that um, uh, through his, the abundance of his trade, his merchandising, his trafficking, his salesmanship, he was able to get a third of all heaven to go. They believed him. They thought, yeah, Satan's going to win. And Satan is just brushed aside by God's hand, and he is cast down to earth. And in outrage, he seeks to destroy what God created. Revelation 12 says that the dragon became furious, and he set off to make war with mankind. And so what does he do? He goes to the garden, and our first parents, Adam and Eve, are there. And he puts it in, in, in their mind and in their heart, God's not really good, and you can't really trust him. And, by, and, and, and through his deceit, they choose to sin against God. And God said, on the day you eat of this, you will die. And, and so you think, here it comes. God's wrath and God's judgment is going to come. But by choice of God's will, he instead promises redemption in Genesis 3.15. So then Satan goes to their son, and he puts hatred in, in Cain's heart against Abel. And Cain kills Abel, and you think God is going to strike him down. But God, through choice of his will, promises redemption. And, and Satan leads mankind to live without any thought of God, and to the point where God should totally annihilate them, and yet God rescues Noah. And by choice of God's will, he promises redemption. Noah's descendants decide that they're going to do what, what 
Satan did. And they're going to rise up against God and they're going to build a tower and they're going to march against God. And though God judges them and he confuses the languages, God ultimately, by choices of his choice of his will, provides a, a promise of redemption. And so then God chooses a man, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make of him a great nation. And Satan puts doubt in Abraham's heart. And the doubt is, I don't think that God can actually do this. I'm old. And so he tries to take things into his own hands. He pimps out his wife. He tries to manufacture a son of promise. And yet by choice of God's will, God promises redemption and he provides a legitimate son to him. Satan puts it in the heart of an Egyptian pharaoh to oppress God's people and to enslave them. And, and, and you keep wondering, has, has God forgotten this promise? And yet by choice of God's will, he promises redemption, and he, he allows them to be free. And, and Satan continues to pursue men's hearts, and they do that which is right in their own eyes through the judges' period, through the king's period, through the time of the prophets. And each time that God's wrath comes on them, not to pay them back, but to draw them back. You think they're getting further and further away, and the promise that God might actually redeem them looks so far off that it just seems impossible. And finally, you come to a point in the scripture where God just stops talking to his people. And there's 400 years of God's disappointed silence that you sit there wondering, has God forgotten his promise? Is God actually going to redeem things? And then God, through choice of his will, sends redemption through his son, Jesus. The religious reject Jesus. The nation, though he has done all these miracles, they, they say, we don't want him. We Give us Barabbas. His best friends, one of his best friends, betrays him. Pilate washes his hands of him. The Romans decide to crucify him. And in the crucifixion, he yells out, it is finished. And he dies. And it is the worst possible moment because it's as bad as it can get. Satan has won. Satan has killed God's very son. God's will has been thwarted. God's redemption plan is incomplete. God did not keep his promise to redeem the world. Days pass. Jewish custom taught that on the second day, the soul leaves the body. And so by the third day, there is no hope. But the Sunday after the crucifixion, the earth began to shake. Satan's followers began to scramble. What do we do? He's coming back to life. And amazingly, God, by choice of his will, chooses to resurrect Jesus and to provide us redemption. And he purchased us with his blood and he sealed us with his resurrection. And Jesus becomes the, the redemption for us. And then the Holy Spirit comes down and becomes redemption in us. And the church goes out and takes the story of redemption to the whole entire world. And you see the story of the Bible as it wraps up, it's looking ahead to the day when, when God completely redeems and God vanquishes Satan. And you go to Revelation and it says that he's cast away and, 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 Jesus lives and reigns and calls us his own and makes us adopted and we rule and reign with him because he has redeemed us and he has redeemed mankind and he has allowed us to live and rule with him. And that is a story that you cannot understand completely apart from the story of Boaz and Ruth. 
Because Boaz and Ruth teach us about redemption and it teach us why it is that, that in redeeming, it gives someone a great name. And when Jesus redeemed us, the scripture says, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Without the story of Boaz redeeming Ruth, Boaz's name becoming great, it's hard to understand that Easter is about Jesus redeeming us and and making his name the greatest. And, And redemption is so much better than just forgiveness of sins. Redemption is so much better than just being declared righteous. Redemption is so much better because it means that everything, all of the good and all of the bad, has been purchased and it is now his and we are his and we are adopted into his family and we have a new name and we have an inheritance and we have a relationship and we have access because we have been completely and totally redeemed. It is the story of God's name being great. This Easter, the best way to celebrate redemption is for us to discontinue our efforts to make our name known, to make our name great but to pour all our efforts into making God's name great. Bill Glauber, a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, picked up the story of uh, Peter Berry, the graffiti bomber, and he interviewed Peter's mom after he died and said, um, why do you think he did this? And she said, you know, I, I asked him that all the time. I said, you're going to go to jail. And his reply was, but I want to be remembered. I want to leave my mark. And the next sentence, Glauber concludes, but most of Peter Berry's art, the graffiti, is gone. It's washed away and it's painted over. Life is not about making our name known. Life is about making God's name great. Boaz wasn't remembered because he put Ruth ahead of himself. And Ruth wasn't remembered because she put Naomi ahead of herself. They are remembered because they put Yahweh's name above their own in everything. They modeled the loyal love of Yahweh. When everyone else was doing that, which was right in their own eyes, they sacrificed when everyone else was just trying to satisfy themselves. And so as you wrap up this book, um, you, you see them as signposts, right, to the Redeemer. And then you see Naomi. And Naomi is exactly where she has been through the entire book. You, you read what, what is happening with her, and, and she is looking at uh, Boaz as a redeemer. She's looking at Obed as the one who will be her restorer of life. She's looking at safety and security, and she's looking at it through people. And Boaz and, and Ruth, though, are remembered, and they're remembered as signposts pointing to the better redeemer. Their signposts pointed to the one who didn't just offer forgiveness of sins, but offers complete and total redemption. They point us to the one whose name is above every name. If you are not yet a Christian and you have been tracking with us, um, man, we we pray for you and we pray uh, that the gospel will be alive in your heart. But Romans 3 says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God wants to give you redemption. He wants to buy your life. He wants to redeem your life. He wants to take all the debt that you owe and wipe it out because he has all the riches in the world to give you. He wants to give you a name and an inheritance. He wants to give you himself. And so that is received by faith. And I would ask you, receive it by faith.
Those of you who are Christians, this Easter you can celebrate that Jesus, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you can say with great joy, he is risen and he is a redeemer and he is redeeming all things and you can live in that redemption. So this is the, the, the story of redemption in Boaz and Ruth. This is the story of redemption in the Bible. This is your story. This is the story of God redeeming you. You are redeemed, so make his name glorious. Our Father, we are deeply grateful for the Scripture. We're deeply grateful that every page of the Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus said, you search the, the Scripture diligently looking for for God, but these things testify about me. And so, Lord, we look through the scripture and we see Jesus on every page. We see his work. We see the redemptive plan that you put together. And we understand more fully what it is that you are offering us, what it is that you have done in our hearts because of the story that we read about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. Lord, I pray that we as a people will not focus on making our name great, but that we will focus on making your name great. It's not, it doesn't matter if our name is known. It doesn't matter if our name is remembered. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that your name is made great, that it is proclaimed to the nations. And so, Lord, I pray that we will be a people that proclaim good news to all the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.